COVID-19 pandemic changed the world in countless ways. And one of the most frightening of those changes was the dramatic increase in racially motivated violence towards Asian Americans. Thousands of people have reported being attacked, harassed, or targeted for being perceived as vectors for the virus. For untextbook producer Victor Yi, this rise in anti-Asian sentiments is troubling, but not exactly surprising from a historical perspective. I think there's this understanding that for those that understand Asian American history, it's one that is particularly a dark history. For example, there were Asian exclusion laws and acts from the 1880s to the 1950s and that Asian Americans were not allowed to vote. But just like how other types of Americans are proud to be American, Asian Americans should not only be proud of their own Asian history, but also their American identity as a whole. Victor read the book, The Making of Asian America by Dr. Erica Lee. Parts of Dr. Lee's family have been in the U.S. since the 1850s. But despite these deep American roots, she's used to people assuming she's not from here. Not really American. So the majority of her book is explaining various events through history where labels continue to get swapped. So people sometimes label Asians as good, sometimes as bad. So it's always shifting behind immigration or through settlements or through the various types of Asian Americans that have come to this country and built their own Asian American life. After the break, we'll hear an interview between Victor and Dr. Erica Lee about the history of Asians in America and how they've navigated shifting perceptions over time. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbooked. Stick around. Untextbooked. Hi, thank you so much, Professor Lee, for speaking to me today. Um, so many people actually do not know that you have roots that actually establish all the way back to the gold rush. So could you give me a little bit more context on your family heritage that has led you to this moment in time? Yeah, thank you. And first, thank you so much, Victor, for inviting me to join you. I'm really happy to be here. So you're absolutely right. My family goes way, way, way back. And this is actually not something that I knew growing up. I grew up with immigrant grandparents on both sides of my family, from China, from around um, Guangzhou or Canton. And because they themselves were immigrants, I thought uh, that, you know, my sisters and I identified as third generation. But then I started to remember little tidbits from family conversations and through my historical sleuthing and my detective work in the archives, I found the immigration file for my great-great-great-grandfather who had come to the United States as one of those Chinese um, seeking gold in the 1850s, arrived in 1854. That was just a phenomenal discovery. And it also came with a little bit of irony, I think, because I realized how many times growing up I had been made to feel un-American or somehow foreign because of the way that I look. And I thought, you know, with this documentation, my family's been here much longer than many of those kids, you know, who are probably third generation. It actually kind of made me kind of me laugh, but also a little mad at how these ideas of Asian Americans being perpetually foreign continue to shape the way that the world sees us. 
Wow, that's incredible to see the traces that you can make. I was wondering if maybe I know that you wrote the book The Making of Asian America, and one of the most fascinating stories was the story of Eva Moy and her journey to America. And maybe if you can talk a little more about her story, because even I, as an Asian American, did not even know about her existence until reading your book. Yeah, this is a story that I didn't know well either until I started researching this book. So one of the great, I think, discoveries and one of my favorite histories from our past is the story of Afang Moy. She was a, a young girl, a young woman who was the first known Chinese female in the United States when she was brought to the country in 1834. We don't know if she was forced or coerced. The popular story is that two American businessmen who were doing um, import and export between the United States and China had gone to her father and asked, you know, if she would accompany them to the United States as part of a shipment of Chinese goods and oriental goods, furniture and fans and clothing, you know, decorative items. And they wanted this young girl, this girl, young woman, to come and help to sell these items, to be another decorative object, to be put on display in New York City where people would pay, I think it was 50 cents, you know, to come and look at her as if she was a chimpanzee in the zoo um, because she was allegedly, you know, so exotic and so different. And, and I, you know, even though we don't have the documentation, I, I think it's pretty clear that she had very, very, very little free will to come, whether it was her father telling her you're going, or maybe there was really no father, you know, agreement with the American businessman either. Her story picks up in the United States where she is put on display. She's made to dress up in, in what is billed as, you know, traditional Chinese clothing. She shows, you know, she shows people how to use chopsticks. She speaks a few words of Chinese. She has bound feet, which meant that she was of an upper class. Bound feet was a common... Well, it wasn't so common, but it was a desired aesthetic look for high-class Chinese women that literally not only disfigured them, but disabled them by, I mean, it's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty graphic uh, description of, of basically, you know, breaking your feet and binding them so that they're really tiny and that women were really lost their mobility. They could sort of just teeter around. And the idea was that if you were rich enough that your wife did not have to work, then you would bind their feet to show, you know, that she could just live a life of leisure. So she had bound feet and she was um, asked to, to take a few steps around the room. She later toured with Barnum and Bailey of, you know, in the circus. Her story is one of of really tragedy, I think. She represents the ways in which America viewed China and the Orient. And I use that word, the Orient, very deliberately because that is how they viewed Asia, you know, a place of 
exotic and foreign and different and inferior and something to be gawked at and bought and controlled. Her treatment shaped the ways in which later generations of Chinese and Asian and Asian women were treated and viewed, I think, to this day. Yeah. Could you maybe expand a little bit more on the influence of her story that it has on the portrayals of not just Asian women, but just how Americans view Asian Americans in general? You know, so first of all, I think we're so lucky to be living in this time when we've got such a great diversity of Asian stories, Asian um, characters, Asian movies and films and, and series. There's just a great diversity of representation that I think is self-consciously and very deliberately trying to represent a great diversity of Asian America, but also steer really, really far away from the more stereotypical representations that had dominated American popular culture from the time of Afan Moy in the 1830s, I'd say up through the 1980s. So, and they're very gendered, meaning that um, there were very specific portrayals of Asian men that were different than Asian women. So Asian men, there is a variety of stock characters, the martial artist, you know, the Kung Fu master, the Bruce Lee, the unintelligible nerd who speaks with an accent you know, who is the butt of many, many jokes. So the, the foreigner, right, buck teeth and glasses and, and speaking in Ching Chong, you know, um, English. And then there's the invisible, the invisible guy, <laughs> the waiter, you know, the, the, the one in the background, which is that, you know, like that invisibility and the persistence of that is, is actually kind of a stock character. And then for women, it was the Dragon Lady. You know, Anna Mae Wong was um, a pioneering Asian American actress who had to play these roles over and over again, like the beautiful, exotic temptress who was evil, a mastermind who wanted to dominate the West and who could turn um, men, especially white men, to jelly with her seductress ways. And then there was the Lotus Blossom, the submissive, meek, very foreign geisha girl, you know, who was the opposite of the dragon lady, meaning very willing to please and always sort of pleasing a, not only their fathers and brothers, but often in Hollywood, then a white American husband. Or there was the down and out prostitute with a heart of gold, you know, and so the commonality here is that women were hypersexualized. And, and Asian men were either hyper-masculine or anti-masculine, you know. And of course, these are just, they're just such unfortunate stereotypes that had so much lasting power, continue to have so much lasting power, not only in popular culture, but then in so much of America where many people don't know any Asian Americans or are exposed to Asian American culture, this is what they come to understand is an Asian American. Wow. 
I think one part that I want to kind of extract from that is that the term Asian American really encompasses a huge diversity of cultures and experiences. I know that something that I wanted to focus on this episode was particularly with Chinese Americans. Um, I was wondering, maybe you can talk a little more about the immigration and the labor practices that impact the Chinese American experience, because I know and recall that you wrote in your book about the first law or acts that really targeted a specific group of people within a, a particular racial demographic. I was wondering if maybe you can dive a little bit deeper into that concept and why that was such a big deal for people that looked like us, especially here in America. Yeah. So first of all, the label Asian American is incredibly diverse. It refers to over two dozen and counting communities, groups who have roots in or descended from Asia, meaning East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. And it's a term that not every person of Asian descent in the United States identifies with. It's also one that is really complicated for how inclusive it really is. But it is a term that Asian American activists chose themselves in the 1960s during the civil rights movement and the Asian American movement to create solidarity with each other, to create solidarity and allyship with other marginalized people of color communities, and also to claim a real place and a stake in the United States. The, the predominant term prior to that to refer to peoples of Asian descent in the United States was Oriental or yellow. <laughs> so, so Asian American became the chosen term along with African American, um, Chicano, et cetera, Native American. Within the Chinese American community, this is a group that is the oldest in terms of largest communities in the United States and continues to be one of the largest today, along with Indians, Koreans, Filipinos. Because Chinese immigrants were the first group to come in large numbers of immigrants who were not white. So, of course, we had a lot of immigration and settlement from Germany and Ireland and Scandinavia. The Chinese were the first to come who were not white. It, of course, not including enslaved peoples from Africa. And we can see really very clearly how much race mattered in terms of how they were viewed and also eventually excluded and expelled from the country. And Chinese are automatically classified alongside African-Americans and Native Americans as threatening, inferior, they're denied rights, they're denied citizenship, they are discriminated against, there's great violence. You know, you and I, we are talking in mid-October of 2021, and in just a matter of days, October 24th, 2021, it will be the 150th anniversary of the Los Angeles massacre when 17, 18 Chinese immigrant men were hunted down by a riot, a crowd of 500 Angelinos in Los Angeles and brought to gallows that were built and erected in, in downtown LA. It's the largest mass lynching, the largest mass lynching in the United States in our history. 
So this is a period of huge violence, but this this vigilante violence does not seem to solve the problem of what was called the Chinese problem. And in 1882, the United States government passes the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first federal law that singles out an entire group based on race and class for exclusion from the United States, immigration exclusion. Um, it is supposed to last only 10 years. Um, it's one of these temporary measures. So, uh, you know, when when we're talking about immigration today, we're often we're often um, hearing about policies that are meant to be temporary, like the Muslim ban was supposed to be temporary, but then it ended up becoming permanent until President Biden overturned it. The Chinese Exclusion Act was the same way. It was supposed to last for 10 years. It ended up lasting 61. Wow, I'm even taken aback by that particular part of history that is often overlooked. I know that the, one of the most interesting things that you just talked about was about the lynching in general as well. I was wondering, maybe you can talk a little more about that incident or just multiple, one after another, domino effects that kind of take us through history as Asian Americans living in, in America. So first, I don't want to equate the mass lynching in LA to the racial violence directed at African-Americans, the lynchings, et cetera, throughout the South. The numbers that we have documented in terms of expulsions or, or violence directed at Asian-Americans and even this lynching, the numbers pale in comparison. So that's an important sort of caveat. But then, you know, when we do look at the details of this violence, the, you know, the historical documents by Asian Americans themselves describe these decades as a reign of terror. South Asians were forced from, from the city of Bellingham, Washington in 1907. Uh, Filipinos in the 1920s were routinely chased out of town. The Chinese, the entire Chinese population of Tacoma, Washington and Seattle, Washington, cities now that we think of as, you know, bastions of, of liberal progressivism and welcome and everyone wants to live there. They forced their Chinese communities out of the cities, you know, under armed, you know, guard in 1885 and 1886. So it's important to see Asian American history as, you know, as connected to um, the same histories of racism that shape African-American and Native American and Chicano Latino history, but in different ways. One particular feeling that many people have to feel, especially in groups that represent you and myself, is this sort of identity of being a model minority. Um, and I was wondering if maybe you can talk a little more about what that looks like, why sometimes people consider it a myth, or it is largely considered a myth, and how that really influences people like us today as we're living here on a day-to-day -day basis in America. First of all, we need to think about the origins of, of this model minority term. It's not something that Asian Americans called themselves. This is something that the mainstream media helped to create. And it's explicitly, well, first of all, it's partly based in World War II. 
when Chinese Americans who had been the excluded, the ones who were such a threat, were now kind of held up in comparison to Japanese Americans and seen as the friends, <laughs> the allies, as opposed to Japanese and Japanese American enemies in the United States. So these three groups and Filipino Americans, I forgot about um, including them, they're seen as hey, they're not so bad. <laughs> they're not as bad as we thought. We should reconsider, you know, where they fit in. And then comes the civil rights movement. And as I think many listeners know, this is not Martin Luther King gave his speech, that there was the march, and then everything was great. This was decades and decades of, of toil, of strife, of violence, of murders, of pickets and police dogs and fire hoses. I mean, it, it's bloody. It is bloody. And, you know, by 1964, 1965, the federal government does pass laws that guarantee civil rights, that guarantee voting rights. But it's not, again, it's not as if everything turns on a dime, you snap your fingers and everything is wonderful. There's still quite a lot of fear and there's resentment. So that when in the late 60s, the African-American civil rights movement turns away from equality, you know, equal rights in the law only to say that we actually need to examine systemic racism, institutionalized discrimination in our policies and our organizations. And what that's going to take is really a, a you know, radical restructuring of society. Then we get more pushback from the establishment, from politicians who want to say, there's no systemic racism. There's no institutionalized discrimination. And what they realize is that pointing to Asian Americans as an example of how one minority group has been able to succeed can be used as a means to dispute the argument that there's institutionalized racism. So by the 1960s and, and the 1950s, you begin to see newspaper articles talking about this Chinese American family, this Japanese American family. They face discrimination, but through hard work, family values, and respect for authority, now their children are on their way to becoming doctors, lawyers, engineers. They are the model for other minorities. There is an article in U.S. News and World Report that explicitly says, you know, these Chinese Americans are making it on their own with no help from Uncle Sam. They're not asking for welfare. They're not asking for handouts. They are doing it on their own. And so the explicit comparison is these African Americans who are protesting in the streets, who are asking for government handouts, their arguments have no merit. If we look at what the Chinese Americans are doing, we can see that there's no institutionalized discrimination. It's just that the, the African Americans, they're not working hard enough. They don't have the right family values. So unfortunately, the model minority, this idea of Asian Americans as the model minority only expands in the succeeding decades. I do believe that Asian Americans embrace it themselves because 
they continue to see that this is their pathway to making it in the United States. You know, so specific industries like STEM and accounting and law and medicine, those were, see, they, those were, you know, open to Asian Americans. And also it, it, those professions kind of helped to amplify existing stereotypes about Asians being very proficient in STEM fields, but not necessarily arts and literature. So it's a really complicated, unfortunate, messy history that continues to impact generations now of Asian Americans to the point where I think that many internalize it themselves. And I think so many of us have grown up, you know, I'll just speak for myself, have grown up thinking that it was a detriment to be Asian American. I had that same feeling. And I think what I'd like listeners to think about is there are many, many ways, many, many ways for us to be Asian American and to contribute to the, the community and to the larger uh, world in which we're living. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, Dr. Erica Lee is the author of the book, The Making of Asian America. Um, Professor Lee, where can people find more of your work? Oh, I do have a website. It's just at ericalee.org where I post a lot of, of things that I've written or um, interviews. And so that's, that's a good place to start. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Lee, for this conversation again. Thank you. Dr. Erica Lee is a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. Victor Yi is a freshman at the University of Southern California. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Emman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Untextbook is a project of God history an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>